and welcome to another new episode of Cracking One Open with Mike and Elise. I'm Mike. I think that makes me Elise. Nope, because I'm also Elise. Aww. You're our special guest star. <laughs> <laughs> well, shit. <laughs> Boom. Hi. All right. So today, let's just get into it. What are we drinking today? Today, we are drinking Rose Goza. Uh, from Two Roads Brewing Company, the latest installment in their tanker truck series. And they described this as being inspired by the great rosé wines filled with floral aroma and refined notes of strawberry and raspberry. <laughs> so this follows their launch of the Sauvignon Blanc Goza from last summer. And that was created using Sauvignon Blanc grapes, whereas for the rosé Goza, they used Grenache grapes. And master brewer Phil Markowski, we love you, Phil, believes that the Grenache variety of grapes, which are mainly used for red wine, can blur the lines between what people think are beer and wine. <laughs> and in a press release, he said that by essentially marrying beer and wine, we're exemplifying two roads, roadless traveled philosophy. Besides wanting consumers to enjoy this and really all of our beers, we want our consumers to be educated and even challenged by our beers. If something like our Rosé Goza challenged, challenges a consumer's preconceived notion of what beer and wine are and forces them to rethink or redefine them in their own minds, well, I think that's a good thing. I agree, Phil. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you say? Shall we crack this Rosé Goza wide open? Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. So have we not done a bottle yet on Cracking One Open? I don't think we, well, we did in our pilot episode, which is yet to be released. Okay. <laughs> which was also Two Roads, The Dry and Mighty. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll set up a Patreon and we'll have that be our like bonus episode. Bonus episode. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. No. I forgotten cinema with, uh, with Mike Field was way worse for our pilot episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which movie was that? Sphere. Oh. He taught me to hate it. Oh. <laughs> So we are also drinking these just to uh, illustrate for our listeners out of our Rosé Goza glasses that we received for participating in their brunch launch of this beer. Called? The, well, I think you should say it because... The fucking Stratolina wine mixer. Folks, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> he said that over the course of the day. That's the fucking Stratolina wine mixer. What was I supposed to do? <laughs> now, to be fair, they, they called it the Stratolina wine mixer. Clearly, that is uh, an homage to the movie Step Brothers. Mm -hmm. At the end, they have the Catalina wine mixer. Yep. Everyone just in the movie, when everybody comes together and that's when the movie ends, everyone just in the entire audience just goes, this fucking Catalina wine yeah, mixer. Yeah, you can't even, I can't say, even it say it now. Fucking Catalina wine mixer. It's the fucking Catalina wine mixer. It's the fucking Catalina wine mixer. Um, <laughs> so they did not call it the fucking Stratalina wine mixer at Two Roads. They just called it the Stratalina wine mixer. Yeah. But it was, it was a really fun time. I'm sure it was, it was really like cool. a residential area, so... Can't really um, be saying that on the microphone. Yeah, it was a good time. That brunch was cool. It was. I it enjoyed was fun. It. We got our fancy glasses. Yep. They had bunk beds. They again, did. Stepbrothers. Step Photo op. They also made some very interesting mixed drinks with the, their different gozas. Beer tails. Yep. So uh, you want to you wanna take a sip? Clink it. Cheers. Mm, it's so good. It is. What I really like about it, the color is really nice. It's got a really nice, um, almost rose gold kind of color to it. Yes. Uh, which is really interesting for a beer. And when you drink it, it's 
It's got a little bit of that sourness, which, mm-hmm. of course, I love the gozas. I of love course. how sour they are. A little bit of that saltiness that's in there. Not as salty as the geyser, which will always be my favorite. But I find it, and I like the Sauvignon Blanc a lot. Yes. I find this more drinkable. I find, I Extremely. think, going forward, if the rosé is, is becomes like a mainstream, mm-hmm. I think I would drink this more in the summertime and do the Sauvignon maybe in the wintertime. Okay, I can see I that. Because I feel like this is a little less salty, a little sweeter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still sour, kind of still puckers you up. Yeah. Um, but I feel like this is better in the heat. This is better in the sun than maybe the Sauvignon would be. Cause I find the Sauvignon, I don't know if you still have, uh, if you have the same reaction, it kind of mm. dries you up. Yes. Yeah. I would agree. And the wine taste is very, very subtle. The Sauvignon kind of like really hits you with that wine taste. This is kind of like. It's more, it will, I, I feel like the Sauvignon Blanc grapes promote more of a not bitter but a sharp kind of taste so i, I think that, that combined with the saltiness of the goza would hit you harder okay i get that i mean this also i think compared to most any gozas that have come out um so far that i've had this mm-hmm. is this is one that i could see myself opening and having with a meal because it's subtle and the yeah. the flavor actually does it, it falls off your tongue after you drink it which I like in a beer. Mm-hmm. I, I also like lasting flavors when they're good as well. But, you know, every once in a while you want to uh, you want a beer where you're going to go out to eat and have a beer with your meal. Yeah. And this is one where, where it's I not going to affect could, the taste of your meal. Yeah. Or ruin the taste of a really nice beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is one of them because the taste of this beer really falls off your tongue as soon as you drink it. Yeah. And that allows for maximum drinkability and drinkability. Yeah. <laughs> crushability you might say this uh, is not crushable nah. uh, gozas are not crushable no nah, um, not so much based on the very fluid definition of what crushable is yeah yeah this is a good one I, yeah i i really enjoy this one i mean i don't know if anything will beat the lime goza for me but this is definitely a close second and like you said it, it is much more drinkable oh yeah I mean, I mean, I like this a lot, mm-hmm. but I don't know if this beats the geyser goes. I'm, yeah. I'm comparing this to just the um, Sauvignon Blanc. OK, I would have to do I'd be interested. I not on this cast, but like maybe another cast where mm-hmm. I did like a, a a flight, like a flight, like do like, <laughs> all right, here's my here's my listing. Maybe I'll do an mm-hmm. Instagram story one time next time we go to two roads and do like a flight of all the gozes. Yeah. And be like, all right, in order from favorite to least favorite. Granted, least favorite is still pretty high up there in terms of gozes because I love all of their sours. Yeah. Least favorite is by no means a knock against it. Right. <laughs> Just listen to them in order of what I think is best order. I mean, mm-hmm. Geyser's going to be on top, but obviously for you, yeah. it's going to be hard to top that. So if you've caught our previous episodes, like I mentioned, we did cover Geyser Goza, which was Two Roads' first foray into the Goza style of beer. Um, And we covered the history of Goza beers. So I thought for this episode, I'd look more into the rosé beer trend. Okay. Um, So last year, according to Thrillist.com, there were 102 major beer styles judged at the Great American Beer Festival, but none of them were considered a rosé beer. It's not an official style, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead, it falls under the umbrella of a hybrid beer. And the the beer-wine hybrid isn't new, which (laughs) seems to be the case, as we're finding uh, with a lot of the trendy stuff that that we've been covering. Yeah, I had my little... uh... My little outburst last episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> and Dogfish Head has actually been brewing this beer wine hybrid since the late 90s. Fan favorites like Noble Rot, which personally I've never heard of, mm, um, no. that uses must, which is unfermented grape juice to create beer with wine characteristics. Um, and this trend isn't limited to the United States either. Belgian beer makers, I'm going to 
butcher this name and I apologize in advance. Brasserie Diashouf. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm sorry. I'm not trying it. <laughs> uh, so they also brew a hybrid using grapes from a Burgundy winemaker. So Matt, again, I'm, I might butcher this name and I apologize in advance. Matt Brynoldson, uh, brewmaster for Firestone Walker, talked to Beer Connoisseur about the difficulties of creating a beer wine hybrid, mainly working with grape juice on a large scale mm-hmm. because all of the groups are harvested in one month, but then the juice has to be stored all year long or until it's actually used. So Firestone actually harvested 180 tons of grapes from Castoro Winery, uh, who's kind of their neighbor, I guess, in California. So the juice is chilled and then cross flow filtered at the winery and then stored in near freezing temperatures until the brewery is ready to use it. So logistically, it just sounds like a nightmare to deal with that volume of grape juice. It's a lot of grape juice. It's a lot of grape juice. Especially thinking that breweries aren't really set up ever unless like you want to open a wine mm-hmm. A hybrid beer facility. Yeah. You didn't have grapes in mind when yeah, you opened. Exactly. They're they're lucky that they're so close to another winery. Um, and another challenge is that legally these breweries making a beer wine hybrid have to make sure that their product is still 51% beer. And apparently a lot of these hybrids really ride that line. Um, but I will say in doing this research that most of the rosé beers uh, that I read about and the there are a lot. We're mostly either ales or lagers. I found one that was a Saison, and that was from Amagang, and two other rosé beers that were Goza's. Uh, one is from Modern Times and the other one from Anderson Valley, which, as we mentioned in the Geyser Goza episode, they kind of pioneered the Goza revival. Mm-hmm. Um, so that didn't surprise me that they, they had a rosé one. Well, Thimble Island now has a rosé brute as well. Oh, okay. And that's new. That just came out not that long ago. Interesting. So we'll have to try that one, too. Mm-hmm. So that that's pretty much what I have as far as rosé ales go. But I also have a funny anecdote. <laughs> OK. <laughs> so uh, apparently Oscar Blues brewed one just within this past year that they initially named Guns and Rosé. <laughs> um, and then they promptly received a cease and desist from Guns and Roses. Of course. <laughs> But they actually kind of ignored it and moved forward with releasing the beer under that name in six packs and in draft in February 2019. So at this point, Axl Rose is pissed (laughs) and Guns N' Roses actually filed a lawsuit for trademark infringement. And even though Oscar Blues had already announced that they would stop selling the beer and associated merch sometime by 2020... (laughs) So I guess there was a lot of back and forth and litigation, and they, but they re, they reached some kind of agreement and the lawsuit is being dismissed. However, Oscar Blues announced last month that a rosé beer with an almost identical flavor profile, which is, I guess, the prickly pear and hibiscus were the additional flavors in this rosé beer, would be coming soon. But now it's going to be coming out under the name Rosé for Days. So kind of working around the disagreement there. I feel yeah, like, like that's satirical, and so they don't really have much of a case. He just—I feel like they're probably kind of money hungry. I don't—I don't know. Oh yeah, for sure. But cut that because if they hear that that's slander, and now we're gonna get sued. Ah crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also like the can. The cans are very mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, they're all very similar. Their goes because they're part of the tanker truck series, which mm-hmm. we talked about as well. But this one, obviously, because it's a rosé, is pink. There's grapes on it. It's just really the pink makes it really mm-hmm. pretty. It does. But it's pink and silver, and um, they do have a description of the beer on the back of their can. It goes, rosé, gosé, 
Two Roads is driving a tanker truck down the road less traveled with this Rosé Gose, pronounced Goza. I yeah, call it, you just call yeah, never mind. <laughs> Let me redo. Uh, no, yeah, I've been calling it Rosé Gose this whole time. You have. Screw it. I just really <laughs> like calling it Rosé Gose, but it's a Goza, not a Gose. <laughs> this Rosé Goza, pronounced Goza. We cattle soured this ale in our own tanker truck trailer, a former milk tanker truck like the one on the front label that's parked right in the grounds of our brewery. Inspired by the great Rosé wines of the south of France, we chose to feature the Grenache grape in our Rosé Goza. Grenache is prized for its renowned floral aroma and refined notes of strawberries and raspberries. Here's to taking the road less traveled in life and in beer. Ooh. Right? So yeah, the Tanker Truck series is really easy to kind of denote because of their distinctive cans, mm-hmm. which I kind of like. Makes them really easy to find and all the colors you can kind of put together and create like a rainbow. It's true. And we discovered that Thimble Islands also have a similar pattern in the way that they design their uh, siren series right they have a series of beers and they're mutually assured destruction as well it's still the nuclear explosion but with different colors and Mm -hmm. stuff like that so yeah i think that completes our beer portion i'm gonna keep sipping but you want to talk about some uh some stuff some stuff let's go on talk about some stuff so i'll start with a little bit of short news um so since apparently i'm on james bond watch um always they have just announced uh, yesterday or the day before a new, a finally a title for James Ooh. Bond 25. So it is called No Time to Die, which I kind of like. Yeah. There aren't very many Fleming, um, even short stories to really call anything anymore. Okay. They've used up a bunch of them. Um, so No Time to Die is a very, a very it, James it totally Bond title. Fits, yeah. And it's very easy. You can definitely see No Time to Die being a lyric in, a, in his opening song. Mm-hmm. Like something like Quantum of Solace, I accept as a James Bond title, but No Time to Die absolutely more, sounds. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like that. The logo is kind of cool. It's kind of retro. My only problem with the logo is they have they have room to add that 007. You know, in between no and two, the way they have mm-hmm. everything layered, they can make it 007 somewhere. Oh, yeah. They can add that. Um, they planned for this. And then they didn't in the title logo. But the logo is kind of retro-y, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, with lines kind of striking through it. Yeah, kind of. It says seventies to me. Yeah, which I kind of, I kind of dig that. Yeah. It's very James Bond. So I'm excited. I think I've already talked to a, a whole bunch about the movie, so I'm not going to announce anymore until we know more. Mm-hmm. However, um, they do have an official plot synopsis now. So in No Time to Die, Bond has left active service and is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica. His peace is short-lived when his old friend Felix Leiter from the CIA turns up asking for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be a far more treacherous than expected, leading Bond on the trail of a mysterious villain armed with a dangerous new technology. So I like that Felix right off the bat. Felix Leiter's back. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a huge, important character from not just all the past films in Daniel Craig's, but all the past films in general in James yeah. Bond and in the novels as well. So I like that they're bringing him back. I don't know about continuing the story that they left off in in Spectre mm-hmm. because... Uh, Quite honestly, I didn't think Spectre was very good, and which is sad because Daniel Craig is my favorite James Bond. Casino Royale is one of my favorite movies of all time, mm-hmm. and Skyfall is a fantastic James Bond movie, second second to Casino Royale. So I don't know about continuing the story about that, him having left Secret Service, him being with Leia Sado, uh, her character, because A, Leia Sado is about 30 years younger than Daniel oh. Craig, and also I didn't really buy their romance that much. Mm-hmm. 
obviously Ava Green's character had to die in the end of um, Vesper had to die at the yeah. end of Casino Royale because that's part of the story. But I felt like they had a much more strong, they had a much stronger connection, a much better written um, romance, and I had more time to blossom. This kind of was just like boom, boom. I think I love you, even though I just hated you two yeah. seconds ago. So I, I don't want to talk bad about characters, but I hope she dies pretty quickly <laughs> into it um, because, well, I don't think she's a very interesting character. I do like that he's enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica because that's where uh, Ian Fleming's estate. His mm-hmm. GoldenEye estate is what he called it. Uh-huh. Yeah, That's where they got the title for GoldenEye. Mm-hmm. That's where his estate is. That's where he wrote a lot of the James Bond novels, where he wrote Chitty Chitty hmm. Bang Bang and stuff like that. So that's pretty important part of James Bond's kind of history. I guess returning, uh, returning actors and actresses, they've already pretty much announced already. Naomi Harris is going to be Moneypenny. Ray Fiennes is going to be M. Uh, ben Wishaw is going to be Q. Roy Kinnear is back as uh, the chief of staff, Bill Tanner. He's been in there since uh, the Casino Royale days. That's kind of like a minor uh, character, mm-hmm. but a helpful character for James Bond. Lazado obviously is back as Madeline Swan, And Rami Malek, coming right off the heels of winning the Oscar, is going mm-hmm. to be playing the villain of the film. Interesting. Has he been a bad guy before? Uh... Well, if you watch his his show on uh, TNT or whatever, Mr. Mm-hmm. Robot, kind of. Okay. Um, it's a very mind-bendy kind of show. Mm-hmm. But not, I don't think he's ever played a straight-up bad guy, no, that I know of. And then, obviously, um, another rumor was that Lashana Lynch, who's a uh, British actress, is going to be playing the new 007 because James Bond retired. So he's going to end up kind of butting heads with her okay. and trying to obviously bed her. And she wants <laughs> nothing to do with him. And that's going to frustrate him to no end, I'm sure. Absolutely. So I'm hoping James Bond 25 is really good. Mm-hmm. No time to die. I'm sure because it comes out April 3rd is the official uh, release date in the UK and April 8th in the United States for us. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping we get a trailer soon, a teaser trailer, something yeah. like that. I'm a little disappointed with the way they're promoting this movie now. It, it kind of makes me nervous. They're not doing any behind the scenes looks at anything. And in the past... As far as like world is not enough with Pierce Brosnan, the James Bond website's always been really good about letting you get a behind the scenes look at how they make James Bond films. And being an actor and and filmmaker myself, I love watching that stuff and the little like vignettes they do about making the movie. There haven't been that many this time. So hopefully there are one or two, but hopefully they do more as we go along. And that's James Bond 25. Well, then I've got two more announcements before we get into our reviews. One quick one is that Arrow star Stephen Amell a.k.a. the actor who I most want to become in terms of his off-screen persona, just yep. in terms of how he acts to fans and and charity work and all that. Like, he's kind of a, a role model in terms of how actors should behave when they reach a, a, a lofty kind of, I would say, a, a list celebrity status. <clears throat> Arrow is fortunately or unfortunately ending, depending on how you see it. It's good to wrap up a show when it's, when it's served its time. Yeah, and not rather than drag it, it out. Yeah. Um, so it is ending the season with a shortened season eight, and it looks like Stephen Amell has already booked his next job. He's going to be headlining <laughs> Star's wrestling drama series, Heel. So anyone who knows wrestling at all knows that a heel is kind of the villain in in pro wrestling. They act as the guy that the audience is supposed to hate and root for some of the other wrestlers that are supposed to be heroes. Oh, okay. I'm so, learning. <laughs> from... What I can read, it takes place, um, it's written by Michael Waldron, who's writing the new Loki TV series, mm-hmm. um, and Mike O'Malley is the, the showrunner, and it takes place in a small town in Georgia, uh, where there there's a pro wrestling circuit going on, and there's a family-owned wrestling promotion, and there's two brothers, one Stephen Amell, and the other, they haven't announced yet, 
But Stephen Amell, I guess, is trying to pay tribute to their father's legacy and kind of raise the status of their their wrestling community. And his character, Stephen Amell's character, is a heel. He's a charismatic villain in the uh, in the ring. But Interesting. out of the ring, he's president of this wrestling association. He's um, a husband and a father trying to, you know, just make ends meet, mm-hmm. realize his dreams while people are kind of getting in his way. And uh, according to the write up I've I've read on Deadline, he has the body of a warrior and a Steve Jobsian need for perfection <laughs> and control. Uh, he'll do whatever it takes to build the DWA into an empire. Will he go so far as to risk his marriage or his relationship with his brother? So it's kind of interesting. Um, also kind of well known if you follow Stephen Amell on his social media pages is he's good friends with Cody Rhodes, who mm-hmm. was a former pro wrestler who just recently kind of retired from the ring. Okay. And he's been on Arrow a bunch of times as well. That was going to be my next question was, did, didn't he also get to fight him? He did in another in different, in a different yeah. um, minor wrestling circuit where Stephen Amell's a member of. Yeah. And I believe his buddy, uh, the guy who played Prometheus on Arrow was his uh, ring, his wingman on that. Oh, too. that's great. So <laughs> he tweeted at Cody Rhodes. He said, hey, at Cody Rhodes, want to come help me make a TV show? <laughs> Uh, so, and that was after, seconds after Deadline broke the story. So that's coming out soon. Hopefully, um, once Arrow wraps, probably 2020 would be my guess. That's going to be a Stars series. So if you have Stars, you can watch it there. That'll be fun. I'm sure he's going to have a lot of fun with that. He does love wrestling. So, all right. And then I have one last bit of news. A huge, major announcement. The Matrix 4 is officially happening. As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. With Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss and the Wachowskis back writing and directing. I mean, this is a big deal. Lana Wachowski is going to write and direct the film. I guess it's mostly going to be her. I guess I don't know what's going on with her sister, if she's going to be really too involved. I think she's going to be a producer, but it was kind of written and directed and produced by the both of them together since the beginning, the first three. That was my impression. Yeah, but whatever. I guess... uh, Remains to be seen. Warner Brother Picture Group chairman Toby Emmerich said that Lana is a true visionary, a singular and original creative filmmaker. And we are thrilled that she is writing, directing and producing this new chapter in the Matrix universe, which said to Mm me, says to me that um, Lily Wachowski, the other uh, sister, maybe has other interested or isn't quite as involved as before. But that's fine. As long as the story is good. They don't really tell you much about it. Obviously, uh, like 20 the Matrix is 20 years old now, which makes me feel super old. But but I'm excited. You really Keanu Reeves wouldn't have done something like this. I mean, he's in everything. Keanu Reeves doesn't need to do a film yeah, unless he it's something he wants to. Point. So I'm hoping it's good. Obviously, The Matrix left. Um, you have not seen all three Matrix. I have not. Matrices, because shame on you. <laughs> but The Matrix 3 does end on a lot of, on a bit of, not a cliffhanger, but an uneasy truce, I would say, an armistice okay. of sorts. So... There's clearly always supposed to have been more to the story. Mm-hmm. I know that the Matrix Online video game that came out right afterward I was kind of exploring that. Okay. That things were still uneasy, that there was still more story to tell. And obviously the legend of Neo and the One and what happened after that, a lot of people wanted to see. So it's cool that we're getting more of that. And the conceptual designer, Jeff Darrow, confirmed on Twitter that he's also going to be working on it and said that most of the original cast is returning. So that means that maybe more than just... Um, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss are returning. Maybe okay. we'll get some Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne yeah. Maybe we'll get some Jada Pinkett Smith. Maybe we'll get maybe we'll get some Agent Smith going on. Maybe Hugo <laughs> Weaving will come back. So 
I'm pretty excited, but that's all the news they really have right there. I mean, these rumors have been swirling around for a long, long time, and it'll be interesting to see if The Matrix is such an inspiration for films that came out after 1999. Oh, yeah. After 1999, everything was The Matrix. Slow-mo, bullet yep. time, yep. kind of that cyberpunk kind of internet feel to everything, kind of really what took off, mm-hmm. that adding greens to your background and blacks and stuff. Oh, like that kind of filter? That kind of filter okay. and, and look is The Matrix. So can the Matrix 4 still be relevant in a time when that has kind of when it's kind of already in the zeitgeist? It has created all that and spawned all these films. Is it something people will be interested in? So Mm -hmm. that's kind of something that might be interesting to see. Like, what do they really have to say anymore in this kind of time? You know, we'll see soon. I'm sure they'll be more announced. They're going to start filming in 2020. So it's only a few months, short months away from starting production. Wow. And that's my pop culture news segment. All right, Marshmallows, season four of Veronica Mars is now officially streaming on Hulu. I finished it a few days ago, and after the ending of the last episode, I'm a little torn, not going to lie, how to feel about it. Uh, Don't get me wrong, this season is absolutely worth watching, and in a world with a lot of crappy and or completely unnecessary reboots, this is not one of them. So definitely go watch it. And then come back because spoilers ahoy. (laughs) Uh, So let's go over casting. They managed to bring back the large majority of the original cast, at least in some capacity, or at least those characters who survived past season three. So I loved seeing Keith and Wallace and Leo and Weevil and Dick and Vinny and Cliff. And it was they're all written well. They all had reasons to be there. It wasn't just like, hey, let's throw this person in just because we can like, woo. I am a little sad that they didn't get Tina Majorino back as Mac, but according to an interview that I read, Rob Thomas, not that Rob Thomas, was pretty upfront with the fact that Mac wouldn't have much of a story this time around, um, that she would essentially be making a character and Tina didn't feel like it would really be fair to the fans. She has a huge cult following. (laughs) And I think the writers also would have had a harder time drawing out the mystery this season had Mac been present because she would have been all over that shit and it would have been solved a lot faster. (laughs) But I also enjoyed the newer characters, Clyde, who is played by J.K. Simmons, and Penn, who is played by Patton Oswalt. J.K. Simmons is in this? Yes. I didn't know that. (laughs) That almost makes me want to watch it. Uh, Both of their roles were really well written and added a lot to this season. I've never seen Patton Oswalt play creepy before, and I kind of dig it. Um, I also liked Maddie uh, reluctantly bonding with and then becoming Veronica's kind of new protege um, and Veronica's, albeit short lived, new friendship with the character Nicole. Um, I think their interactions really helped to bring out the more likable side of Veronica this season. And I will get into that as well. So, like I said, on the surface, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this season. I was fresh off rewatching the first three seasons for probably the fourth time. (laughs) (laughs) And then once I started season four, I did not want to stop. It's fast paced. It's fun. It's got the snark and the heart that we love Uh, with all the old characters and the references. It feels a lot like the old show or as much as it can for being set, you know, 15 years later. Mm -hmm. But I think there are a few reasons why this season fell short of ideal for me. And my first nitpick is that it just feel it feels rushed. The first three seasons had a full like average 20 episode run. Mm-hmm. And this was condensed into only 
eight episodes. So there was really no time for any of the side stories or like bad guy of the week or cases like that that helped develop the characters. You're not going to like the last season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, but being focused on the solving the mystery of the Neptune bomber really make the season kind of barrel forward, like full speed ahead. Mm -hmm. So I think all of the twists and turns that the season would normally be able to spread out over the course of 20 episodes because it was so condensed made it feel like whirlwind, like what just happened kind of thing. (laughs) And my my second thing is that is the way Veronica still acts like her teenage self a lot of times um, when it's obvious that everyone around her has grown up obviously aside from dick um and it's glaringly obvious when she's with her father or wallace and especially logan her love interest for those who are not avid watchers so it it makes sense that veronica shuts down logan's proposal uh she's in a line of work where she literally gets paid to watch couples cheat on each other Mm -hmm. so they're the paranoia is there (laughs) Um, But it's also frustrating knowing that Logan has come such a long way as a person. He's high up in the military, which is a far cry from him telling, basically telling every authority figure in his life to fuck off. He's seeing a therapist about his anger issues. And Veronica almost seems to resent him for not being the same old, like, volatile Logan. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I always shipped them as a couple. But Logan was kind of a terrible person for a long time in the early seasons. (laughs) So the way that Veronica treats him is pretty unfair until the final episode, which brings me to my third thing. So Veronica, after an event, has a moment of clarity where she realizes just how important Logan is in in her life and finally accepts his proposal. So naturally means that he has to die. And I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. Veronica Mars has never been a show where characters get a happy ending. But this is why all of the fake outs leading up to the wedding. First, Logan meets up with his ex, Parker, from season three, when he's about to pick up his marriage license and leaves his place in line to follow her out to her car to talk. Then he goes to see his therapist and she asks if this is what he really wants. And we as viewers don't get to hear his answer. And then while Veronica, Wallace and Keith are literally standing in City Hall waiting for the ceremony to begin, Veronica receives a text that just says, sorry. And we find out, you know, a couple seconds later that it was supposed to be sorry, I'm running late. But obviously it, it, it's a heart stopping moment where we are made to think that he's just not going to show up. Um, and it just seems like an excessive amount of cruelty when he's just going to be killed off mm. by the end of that episode. So, OK, my whining is over. Despite the few things that I just pooped on, please do yourself a favor and go catch the season. And if you're not a fan of Veronica Mars, what are you waiting for? All three seasons are streaming now. No excuses. Where are they streaming? Hulu. (laughs) And as for a season five, Kristen Bell has already said that she would be on board. Um, And they definitely left it open ended with Veronica headed out cross country to take on cases because of Mars Investigation's newfound fame after the Neptune bomber this season, um, while Keith will obviously stay in the office in Neptune with Maddie as she's learning the the ropes. And maybe there's some room for Mac to come back in the picture now with Logan gone. Well, well. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. Highly recommend. Go watch it. Nice. And that's my review. Sweet. <laughs> All right. What are you going to talk about? I have a review as well. 
And before I start this and tell you what I'm reviewing, mm-hmm. let me just say I have their IMDb page up so that I can, you know, name the names correctly and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I have never seen something on IMDb with the popularity of one. What? It is the most popular thing on IMDb. There's not a down arrow. There's not an up arrow. There's not a zero after the one. It is the most popular thing on IMDb right now. What? I will be reviewing Amazon Prime's newest series, The Boys. That's so weird. It is I've never seen apparently that. the most popular thing on IMDb. I will say that IMDb is owned by Amazon. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so Coincidence? Are they- are they adjusting the numbers a little bit? Maybe. But their other shows have never been popularity one. Fair enough. If I look up the uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel, she's not going to be popularity one. True. Neither is Man in the High Castle, which is also very good. Or Good Omens. Good Omens is Amazon, right? Yep. So The Boys is a streaming show on Amazon Prime about a group of vigilantes who are out to kind of stop a corrupt group of superheroes. Uh, the group calls themselves, they call themselves The Boys, I guess. The main character, or the main, the leader of The Boys, Carl Urban's character, Billy Butcher, mm-hmm. calls them The Boys at the end, like offhandedly in a conversation. It's not like the name, of the, they never really have a name okay. in the series. It is based on a novel, a graphic novel by Garth Ennis, who, if you're also a fan of his work, he wrote Preacher, which oh. is also shown on AMC, yep. which is also produced by Seth Rogen, who also produces The Boys. Oh, um, I didn't know but, he was involved. Yep. Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, his producing partner, are producing this. However, Eric Kripke, who you might yeah, recognize from the TV show Supernatural, is the creator and um, showrunner for the show. So obviously, I already said Carl Urban plays Billy Butcher. Jack Quaid plays Hugh Campbell. Huey Campbell, who's kind of our main character. He's who we the lens we look through. The be- TV show begins where Huey's leading a pretty mundane life, working in an electronics store, and he's talking to his girlfriend outside in the street about bigger, better things to come. Mm-hmm. And then his girlfriend gets exploded because a super fast superhero who's hopped up on drugs, you come to find, has murdered his, his just run through his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And because they are a group called the Seven, the Seven Mightiest Heroes, essentially the Justice League, ain't nothing really happens to him. He puts out a public apology, but never really apologizes, offers mm. uh, Huey $40,000 in essentially hush money. Really? Um, even though, which they say is a deal because technically Huey wasn't married or related to her. Oh, come and on. And Huey, who's kind of, he's never really done anything important with his life. He's never really gone out and done something. He's never really stood up for himself. Mm-hmm. Kind of starts to really kind of get upset and starts to push a little bit. Billy Butcher, who is an ex I feel like an XCIA member, but he's definitely been a member, a guy who's worked for the government to kind of quell superheroes a little bit or mm-hmm. stop them or keep them in line. Kind of recruits Huey to, you know, at first just bug the seven and go back in and, and put that in, put a bug in there and listen in and accept the $40,000. And eventually they both get caught up accidentally capturing, uh, beating up and capturing a superhero and eventually murdering superheroes and everything just kind of spirals out of controls. And Billy Butcher kind of puts his old group back together, mm-hmm. who includes actor Laz Alonzo as Mother's Milk, a um, <laughs> a guy who's got a, 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 a wife name. and kid. He's he's trying to get back on the straight and narrow. And then Billy Butcher is able to convince him to come back to the team. And also Tomer Capon, who plays Frenchie, who is seems like 
after he left the original group, he started selling drugs and making weapons oh. and, and just being basically not a great guy. Yeah. Um, but they both come back to the group to stop the seven, to, to put superheroes in their place mm-hmm. um, in a world where superheroes reign supreme. And there's more than just the seven. There's multiple groups of superheroes all around oh. um, who do whatever they want because they're super powered. And if they're superheroes, a big conglomeration kind of owns the seven. Mm-hmm. So they get points on the back end of their own movies that they make and they make public appearances. They're told who they can who can save and not save in the cases they're going to solve. Elizabeth Shue plays the kind of liaison between the main, the the company and the heroes. She kind of is in charge of the seven. Mm -hmm. Uh, Madeline, Madeline Stilwell is her character. And the seven themselves are led by uh, actor Anthony Starr, who stars as the superhero Homelander, who's essentially Superman meets Captain America. Oh, he acts like this higher than mighty, almost godlike figure. But he's got all these different issues and he's got a real twisted dark side as well to him. Mm-hmm. So all of the seven are, are have issues and and are not good people. Queen Maeve, played by Dominic McElliot, uh, McElligot, she is a little bit kind of on the fence. She wants to do the right thing, but is kind of still has gone off the rails a little bit. Mm-hmm. She's a little corrupt as well. I mean, she knows what the rest of the seven are doing, but she does want to do the right thing. But I think she lets the rest of the group kind of dictate what she actually does. The show also follows, along with Huey, I would say its second most important character is Aaron Moriarty, who plays uh, Annie January, who is also known as uh, Starlight. Her power is obviously okay. she's super strong, but she's got this this power where energy comes from her hands and she can all these electronics go crazy and she makes this really bright, powerful burst with her, her powers. Interesting. She's like a, a Southern country girl, a church going girl who went to all these superhero beauty pageants as a kid and, <laughs> and always wanted to train to be a hero and gets elected to the seven when Lamplighter, one of their other seven heroes, retires, mm-hmm. or so they say. And so she gets recruited to the seven and she sees firsthand the corruption. She's immediately sexually harassed. She's immediately uh, made fun of. She's put down. She's told to keep her place. She's given a more, quote unquote, viewer acceptable outfit, which is a sec- just a sexier outfit because it plays better with uh, the male demographic. Nice. Um She's told she can't stop. She stops a rape in one episode mm-hmm. and gets in trouble because it was just filmed of her beating the two guys up and the other girl didn't come forward and you can't do this. We have crime specifically tailored to you. And she just wants to do the right thing. She wants to be a good person and she doesn't follow the script and she fights the system mm-hmm. uh, tooth and nail. And it turns out the viewers really like that. So it's the only kind of reason the company is letting her stay in there and no one's really fighting her yet. So she fate convenes and her and Huey kind of meet in a park bench somewhere mm-hmm. and they start to kind of fall in love with each other. And she doesn't know that Huey kills superheroes for a living. And he doesn't know that she, or at first doesn't know that she's a superhero. He finds out, but still keeps his side of it, obviously a uh-huh. secret. And Carl Urban's Billy Butcher is dead set on having him use Starlight to get all the answers and information he wants. Um. Billy Butcher is obsessed with killing superheroes, especially Homelander, because Billy Butcher, it turns out, has a history of Homelander, which which I won't spoil, mm. but he wants Homelander dead and hates all superheroes. He wants every soup killed. And the show is violent. It is it is dark. It is twisted. It is funny as well. It's got a lot of humor, especially dark humor. It's got a lot of stuff going for it. The writing is fantastic. The acting is fantastic. The special effects are actually pretty good. And and the way it's a lens, the show is a lens that looks back on us and the way we build up our heroes, our celebrities mm-hmm. and our politicians. And that's really what the superheroes represent in this, our, our celebrities and politicians and corporate offices and how much say and sway they have over our lives. Mm-hmm. And 
it's almost if it wasn't so well written, if it wasn't so funny, if it wasn't so shocking, it would almost be too on the nose. That's how like on the nose it is. Is like I get that they're superheroes, but it's so like, oh, that is how people react to celebrities. Wow. That is exactly the shit they get away with every day, all the time. Mm-hmm. And it is so well done, so well written. The stuff that happens is so shocking and interesting that you just want to keep watching it. It's in uh, the first season is eight episodes or is it nine episodes? I, no, I think it's eight episodes. And I I binged through them all in two days. You did. <laughs> um, I watched five episodes the first day and I just finished up the three the next one. The show is absolutely fantastic. Carl Urban is amazing as Billy Butcher. He's amazing in general. I love Carl Urban. I was going to say. He does a great job. Jack Quaid's actually really good as Huey Campbell. And what's interesting is Huey Campbell's character in the comics Mm -hmm. was supposed to be modeled after Simon Pegg because Garth Ennis was a big fan of Simon Pegg back then. So Simon Pegg now, who's a little older, he can't really play Huey because Huey's supposed to be younger, plays Huey's dad in the show, (laughs) which I really like. Anthony Starr does an amazing job as Homelander. Elizabeth Shue is awesome as Madeline Stilwell. Aaron Moriarty, who I had seen in a couple things before, is really, really, really good as Starlighter. And the rest of the cast, Frenchie and, and, and Mother's Milk and stuff like that are really good. Chase Crawford as the Deep is also fantastic. The Deep is like an Aquaman type hero who nice. keeps getting made fun of Aww. and being given crap. Well, he also does something really bad to Starlight in the first oh. season, that first episode. So never mind. I take it back. You take it back. But then at the same time, you start <laughs> to kind of almost sympathize with him a little bit. OK, not like you can't forgive what he did at all. Mm-hmm. But as you go, it's like, oh, man, you are the worst hero. Like, just like, you should never join the seven. He's just the worst kind of person. He's not like, yeah, he's not like, like, he's a bad person, but he's not like Homelander. He's not like really evil, mm-hmm. but he's just like pathetic. And just the more you watch it, you're just like, oh, buddy. Like, Aww. like what he does to Starlight is really bad, but then you see how pathetic he really is. And it's almost like, that's why he did what he did with Starlight. Cause he's, he's pathetic. Oh. And, but it's a lot of the stuff he does is funny because he speaks to fish and dolphins <laughs> and he talks about how funny and how nice they are. And everyone just looks at him like he's a weirdo. <laughs> and he's got a couple of scenes. Uh, one of his scenes is actually my favorite scene in the show mm-hmm. or my, the funniest scene in the show, which I don't want to spoil cause you still have to watch it. I do. And I will watch it again with you in a, in a heartbeat. But that scene alone kind of makes this show. The show's fantastic. It's quick. It's eight episodes. It's got a lot of stuff going for it. Every actor in here is fantastic. Um, I really think that Anthony Starr, Elizabeth Shue, Carl Urban, Jack Quaid, or even Aaron Moriarty could be nominated for an Emmy for this. Wow. Uh, that's how good they do at performing. That's how, that's how fantastic this show is. Obviously, if you don't like the violence, language... Mm-hmm. Sexual sexual situations because it is TVMA. The show isn't for you, okay. but if you can handle that, if you've watched Umbrella Academy, which I don't like, mm-hmm. this is kind of like the same kind of like let's take a look behind the curtain at the superhero genre, but it's better. It's it's so good. It's such a look at our our life today and how we view society. And I can't say enough of it. A lot of times now, TV shows have come out, and I think we were talking about it not that long ago that like this last season. What what did we watch that was new? Nothing. Exactly. We watched no new show probably for the last couple of years. Yeah. This is the golden age of TV and you can tell me a show is great, but it's really hard to get me to watch anything because there's so much on TV. Yeah. It's overwhelming. This is the first show that's grabbed me and has kept me watching. And I, I watched all the way through and it was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. It's got a lot to say. It's really well done. The acting's fantastic. It's quick. Mm-hmm. I think Amazon is done. I like Man in the High Castle and I have not seen Marvelous Miss Maisel, which I've heard is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But Amazon, I feel like right now this is their this is their Stranger Things. This is their show that will put their streaming service kind of on the map and be like, 
This okay, is this is that. why you get Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, so I can't say enough about the boys. Season two is already in production. Hopefully premiere soon by the end of this year, early next year. But yeah, it is fantastic. Nice. Indeed. Now I really want to watch it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so I think that's all we have for you fine folks this week. Thank you for listening. Yes. We will continue to drink our delicious Rosé Gozas. From Two Roads Courtesy Brewing. Courtesy Two Roads Brewing Company in Stratford, Connecticut. <sighs> Would you like to plug anything? I've got two other podcasts that I do. <laughs> I've got Forgotten Cinema that I do with my buddy Mike Field, where each episode we take a look at a movie that for some reason seemed to have been forgotten by audiences, whether it be because another movie came out at the same time that was more popular, or it just didn't catch on with an audience in its initial run. We'll talk about what we love about it, what we might not like about it, and why we think it was forgotten. And um, it's a lot of fun. I myself am an actor and a little bit of a writer, and uh, Mike Field is a writer and director, so we kind of know what we're talking about. We kind of do a Mm -hmm. deep dive in the films. Uh, We do take suggestions, and we've got Forgotten Horror coming up in uh, another month, starting in October, where we do five weeks of horror films. Nice. So if you're interested in that, that'll be our first theme month we do. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can find Forgotten Cinema wherever podcasts are available and on ForgottenCinemaPodcast.com. I've also got Two Player Bros, a podcast I do with my brother Alex, where we're just two bros who play way too many video games, <laughs> um, where we review and preview and talk about the news for all systems, PC, Xbox, PlayStation, Switch. We have not, unfortunately, put out a lot of episodes lately. My brother was busy getting married and going on a honeymoon. How dare However, he? we are picking up steam again. By the time you're listening to this, the newest episode will finally have been out. And uh, Gamescom just happened, so we'll be releasing an episode about Gamescom by the end of August as well. Very nice. So that is Two Player Bros and Forgotten Cinema. All right. And if you enjoyed our podcast, uh, Cracking One Open, please share it with your friends and subscribe to catch our future episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cracking One Open. And a special thanks to our composer and performer of our theme song, Joe Reichert. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>